Welcome to Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 2, Episode 7, Biblical Bragging, Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. Everyone hates a bragger. They're, They're people who are filled with themselves and have to let the whole world know about every single thing they do. And, and social media has even made this just worse. In fact, I'm guessing there are people that you just try to avoid, either in person or especially on in your social media circles, because they're just filled with very narcissistic tendencies. This week on Romans Untangled, we'll look at how to be a bragger and how to be so that it doesn't just point to how great you are and to do it biblically. Thanks for joining us. This is Pastor Steve Treichler up here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I really appreciate all of the the, the love that we've received from so many folks uh, with Carol on the recovery here. If you didn't hear from last episode, she suffered a heart attack, very strange kind of heart attack. Um, her arteries were not hardened, but she'd had a SCAD, and you can look that up, S-C-A-D, what that all is, and it's a very strange thing, but... She's recovering well, and we really appreciate it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for everything, and so many meals people have brought us. Uh, it's it's been just wonderful. Uh, this season on Romans Untangled, we've talked about doing a theological term. Each week, we're going to do a new term, and kind of kind of take a look at these things in the in light of the Book of Romans, but also just to familiarize ourselves with some of the theological language that's out there. And this week, we're going to talk about a phrase called common grace. So. It's grace, but it's common. Um, it's it's available to everyone. And I'm just going to read a definition here from Gail Dornbos. She says this, and I like this definition. She says, common grace is God's general favor by which he restrains sin and its consequences, maintains human life and culture, and bestows a variety of gifts and blessings to all people indiscriminately. In other words, he gives this to all people. They get a, a certain amount. This is me talking now. <laughs> they, 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 there's a there's a, a gift of God's grace so that people can live and have families and uh, be well-fed and be taken care of, right? And the, the idea of this comes originally scripturally after the flood. Now, there's a tons of common grace. The fact that, that Adam and Eve ever take another breath after they sinned in the garden is common grace. But it's really clear after the flood, remember the where it says uh, that all the thoughts of people were wicked and they were turning away from God all the time. And so God pushes his wrath on the earth, which is the absence of common grace at that point in time. It's just God saying, you did this, you're going to get judgment. In other words, that's what we would deserve would be constantly some type of, of judgment upon God because uh, from God because of what we've done. And yet, after the flood, God says this in Genesis 9. Starting in verse 8, it says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. And here is it. Here it is. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. So in other words, this is now God's way of saying, 
I am not going to punish people for their sin immediately. And, and we're going to see this, uh, we're going to see this very shortly here in the book of Romans, where it talks about the sins of people had added up because God was not pouring out judgment upon those sins. He was waiting, patiently waiting, and ultimately it waits for the cross so that sins that were, that were committed uh, were taken by the cross. I like what, um, if you keep going on in this uh, article written by Gail, uh, she goes on to say this, and I'm going to quote from three different paragraphs. I'm just going to read a little bit from each paragraph. Common grace is the grace by which God cares for creation and fallen humanity by upholding and providentially guiding creation despite the devastating effects of the fall. Left to itself, sin would have destroyed and decimated creation. But God did not leave creation or humanity alone and allow sin to wreak complete havoc. Thus, after the fall, by the work of the Holy Spirit, God sustains creation by interposing his grace. She then goes on to quote a, different, a bunch of different scripture passages, which kind of make this clear. Uh, rain falls on the just and the unjust. Uh, grace is shown to the wicked, even though they, they don't uh, you know, do, live in the right kinds of ways. And, and then she goes on to say, in sum, scripture shows that everything good and beautiful has its source in God. He is the one who upholds and guides his creation. Yet, common grace is not enough to bring salvation. It may restrain the effects of sin and enable good and beautiful things within culture and society, thereby enabling cultural development and a measure of human flourishing, but it cannot renew the soul, nor remove the guilt of sin, and redeem fallen humanity. Thus, common grace is only an aspect of God's providence. It restrains, but does not solve the problem of sin. She goes on then to say this, the doctrine of common grace is theologically significant because it allows Christians to affirm and to delight in the goodness, beauty, and worth of creation and culture while still acknowledging the seriousness of sin. And next week, we'll look at what we sometimes call uh, specific grace or effectual grace. So there's different names for it. In other words, the type of grace that actually saves you. Uh, and this particular topic, we look at common grace. It's effective to everyone. Everyone has common grace so that they are able to take their next breath and they are able to uh, live live. Um, you know, lives that are pleasing to one another and they have families and they care for one another and they may have health and, and different things like that. That's all God's goodness. And God is good, right? That's called common grace. So now let's get on to Romans for this week. Just to give you a little bit of a reminder, if you're brand new with us here, or maybe have taken a little bit of time in between episodes, two weeks ago, we looked at Romans chapter four. And what it was is after Paul had developed his understanding of how people are saved, how, how does salvation come? How, how are we forgiven of our sins? And he takes chapters one, two, and three to get there, half of three. Then he gives the solution in the end of chapter three that it's only by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not our faith that saves us, it's Jesus Christ. 
Uh, it, Christ is the mechanism that does this, and he becomes, therefore, just. He punishes sin because sin went to Christ, and the justifier, the merciful, shows off the mercy and the love of God, for the forgiveness of God uh, at the cross. God is both just and justifier. Okay, so then in Romans chapter 4, he's now going to go on to uh, ask the question, well, what about the Old Testament? And he's going to plug in that idea of faith that is that the way it always was? And his argument was, is yeah, we read the Old Testament wrong. It's always been about faith, and it always was trusting in God, even though we didn't know in the Old Testament times how we could be forgiven in Christ, even though we didn't know that. It was still by trusting God. And that's where he goes in chapter four. And he looks at the life of Abraham, briefly at the life of David. Okay, he ends that by saying in verse 23 through uh, 25, the words, it was credited to him, that's what was spoken to Abraham in Genesis 15, were not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then he says this in verse 25. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Now, a lot of people think that this verse 25 here is potentially even an early Christian-like saying that people would have said. And so Paul picks it up or picks a portion of it up and, and repeats it here. In addition to that, though, he talks about Christ's death being for our sins and then there's something about the life of him that is involved in our justification. And we left the question on the table two weeks ago, uh, how is the resurrection of Jesus tied to our salvation? Because normally we think of the, the cross as where the wrath of God uh, was placed upon the Son of God uh, on our behalf. So with that, then we had a, uh, we had a little break. Last week, we looked at Romans 1, or 5, 1 to 5. And it's this beautiful section. And again, I want to read it again here. We're going to come back to that other question later about the resurrection of Jesus, but but it doesn't get answered until this week. And so last week, we kind of talked about some other things. Uh, Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice now, we read this version uh, last week. The word here is, uh, it, can, it can be translated uh, as rejoice. And as we were looking at this, that was what the ESV, the English Standard Version used. And I, I'm using different versions at different times. But the uh, New American Standard Version would use the phrase, we exult. We exult in the glory of God. The New International Version will say, we now boast. They'll use the word boast. That that actually is probably the most clear and simple translation. We now boast in the hope of the glory of God, okay? So obviously that's a little bit where we're going to see that word. That word is actually used three times here in Romans 5, 1 through 11. And if we keep going, it says then, um, not only that, but we rejoice or exult or boast in our sufferings. So we, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Okay, so what's going to happen this week 
is we're going to pick it up and he's basically going to pick up on that last idea of hope. How do you have hope in something? How, how does this hope um, lead for our future? In other words, if if we, we like to describe hope or a definition of hope is an eager expectation of a good outcome, right? And so what happens here is I, I have observable realities. I see them. There's an objective fact, can be in the present or can be in the past. And that leads me then to an expectation then of a good outcome. There's something in the future that I expect and it will be a good outcome, right? And so with that, what he's saying here is that because the Holy Spirit has been poured into our hearts, God's love has been shown to us and that he's been given to us, this allows us to have hope. So now he's going to give this week in Romans 5, uh, verse 6 through 11, He's going to give us even more objective realities. Here we go. Let's take a look at it. It's a great passage, by the way. <laughs> I know I say that every week, but, but this really is. Romans 5, 6 through 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast, exalt, rejoice. In this version, I think I'm using the uh, new, Amer uh, new International Version this week. But we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay. So I kind of want to do it. A lot of times you just go kind of line by line. This one I want to look at a little bit different. I want to first ask the question, just from this passage, who does it or how does it describe those of us who believe, but who we were without the intervention of God? Okay. And so if you look here, verse six says we were, when we were still powerless. And that word means weak or helpless, or that we had a debilitating illness. We're, we're on our deathbed. At Hope Community Church right now, we're preaching through the book of Ephesians, and we're right now in Ephesians chapter two. And I just preached on the first verse of that where it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So this idea without God is we are all of these things. We're powerless. Second thing it says about us is it says right there, it says Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. A, godly, ir irreverent, impious. We were not on God's side, Right? Third thing it says about us in verse 8, it says, while we were still sinners, we were sinners. We were people who were going away from God. And for me, this was a little bit of a difficulty for me to grasp when I first became a follower of Christ. If you would have said, are you a sinner? I would have said, well, I sin, but am I a sinner? <laughs> and now I would say, oh, yes, yes. No, that's on my own. That's, that's who I am. The fourth thing it says in verse 10 is, for if while we were God's enemies, wow, we were God's enemy. 
Uh, right now in our world, uh, the uh, just a day ago, uh, as I record this a little bit early for Romans Untangled, uh, Russia just invaded the Ukraine. And as a result, uh, there's enemies now, uh, br- brutal enemies, and war is happening. In a lot of ways, that's who we are with God. We were on the opposite side of him. So that's how it defines us. In the midst of that, of who we are, then God does the unthinkable. Look at this now. If you look right back to the passage, when does he do it? It says he does it, at the, you see, at just the right time. When we're still powerless. <laughs> Not when we got our act together, when we were perfect and we were coming towards God. No, when we were sick and on our deathbed, when we were dead, right? Galatians 4.4 4 says this beautifully. It says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And and the reason sons is used there is to talk about an heirship. The the heir went through in those days, it went through the son. And that's who we are, both male and female right now. We are getting, we are heirs to all of this. And it's at the right time, when the time had fully come. And God knew what he's doing in a variety of ways. It was a genius time to come historically. Uh, it was also just a genius time in the, in the storyline of scripture. God knew what he was doing. He does it at the perfect time. And what does he do? What does he do? Look at, we go back through the passage. It says, Christ died for the ungodly. When there's no hope on our own, he dies for the ungodly. And if you keep going on here, it says, If you think about this, verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. So here's this passage, uh, and it's saying to us, uh, you know, there have been cases in history where someone has laid down their life on the behalf of another. Now, I'm going to talk about a movie here. The movie is Quiet Place, Quiet Place 2, and I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. So if you've not seen this movie and you want to, and you don't want to know some of how it ends, uh, I, I, you need to back to the podcast at 1928, and we'll let you know then uh, what we talked about. So <laughs> come back in that amount of time. All right, so Quiet Place 2. If you're familiar with that movie, you've seen it, and if you haven't, uh, I can describe it real quick. It's, it's this place where uh, you need to be quiet because these aliens have come who can hear, but they can't see real well at all, really hardly, but they can hear. And if you make noise, then they're going to get you. And in that movie, um, the father in, in the in Quiet Place 2, his kids are trapped and they're, they're going to die. And he looks at the situation and he says to himself, there's nothing I can do to save them except to distract the, the aliens. And in order to do that, he just lets out a scream. And of course, he gets killed by them, but the kids are able to get away. That is self-sacrificial love. There's no other way, and yet you have to uh, give of yourself to do this. Now, for those of you who came back because you didn't want to hear the ending of it, what this shows is that, yes, someone might possibly give yourself for someone because you love them. But then we look at verse 8, and it says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Whenever I wonder what God thinks about me, and especially when I'm at my worst, 
God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is absolutely beautiful. This is how much he loves us. And why does he do it? There's Because of his love, but it's also for his demonstration. God, if you're God, it's okay for you to show off. <laughs> it's not bragging because you're that awesome. And for God to show off his glory and his love through this, it's to our benefit. God is not narcissistic. God is the ultimate being. And so when he wants to demonstrate something off, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So now we're going to land in the passage when we get to verse 9, where we're going to deal with that question, how does the resurrection of Jesus affect our salvation? So let's take a look at verse 9. It says, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, verse 10 is just going to explain Verse 9, it's going to make it bigger. And he says, for, that is, let me explain this to you, for if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Okay, do, do you see where he's going here? He's saying, yes, at the death of Jesus, that is, and that happens when Christ dies for the very people who are putting him on the cross, and, and all of us put him on the cross. Since that's the case, and that's how we were reconciled back to God is through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled through the death of Jesus, and that's an objective fact, right? The crucifixion of Jesus. But also, the resurrection of Jesus is, a, is an objective fact, right? Have the, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life. So that's where we get this idea of how the resurrection of Jesus actually works for us. We will be saved. We are saved, the death of Jesus. Christ's resurrection from the dead shows that, or like as I like to say, Easter Sunday proves that Good Friday worked and that Christ is the first one raised and we will be raised. So his life is a guarantee. It's an objective reality that pushes us then towards a future hope, a, a eager expectation of a good outcome for something moving forward. But not only that, but right now, today, we are being saved. And it's through the life of Jesus and the Holy Spirit living in our lives and moving towards us. This is a verse that, that helps us to know right now that yes, we have been reconciled, but guess what? We are also being saved right now, which brings us now to the title of this podcast, Biblical Bragging. Verse 11, not only is this so, but we also boast in God. We boast in God. We exult in God. We rejoice in God. We brag about God. We brag in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see what that says? It says, we're braggers now. And it's weird because in order to be a biblical bragger, you have to first acknowledge your weakness, your helplessness, your sinfulness, your godlessness, and that we were enemies of God. <laughs> so yeah, it ain't arrogant on our part when we are biblical braggers. 
just I want you to figure this. Think of it like this. You have a, let's say you have an earthly father who is going to make you a very fancy, very nice meal. And they, he invites you, say you're an adult now and you come back, he's inviting you back to the house. And it's not that you don't even bring anything for the meal. In fact, you bring nothing to the table on this. In fact, you're bringing just the opposite. What you do bring is an ax and you start whacking the table and breaking the table and spreading food everywhere. And yet that father holds you, loves you, grabs you, pays for the table, calls Uber Eats and gets the greatest feast for you still to have. In spite of all that, it, it, God touches us. Christ takes our shame, our shame, our social disgrace, as well as the cost, all the damage that we've done. He takes that. Why? Because he loves us, wants to demonstrate this to the, to the universe, and he invites us into a relationship with him. He reconciles us to himself. Now, that's what biblical bragging is. I want to tell people about my dad. Because my dad is that awesome. When I was a complete, fill in your favorite naughty word here, when I was that, God still moved towards me. That's awesome. I like to think of it like this, that, that my heavenly father can beat up any of the other dads on the, on, the, on the block, whatever those dads are. There's other things that compete for my attention and affection, the other you know, small G gods that there are. This one can beat them all up when it comes to love, mercy, awesomeness, caring for me. He has the power to save. And you know, you even see this in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 9 says this in verse 23 through 24. It says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of their wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. Now that's awesome, right? You want to boast? God says, I got a way for you to boast. Here's how you boast in, that you know about the creator. And it's not because you're so smart. It's because he has decided to be gracious towards us in spite of ourselves. So biblical boasting is actually the opposite of personal arrogance. And it's an arrogance in God, if you want to put it that way. It's, it's God's glory. I want to live for that. And I want to show that off. It is a beautiful thing. And may you this week be biblical braggers in everything you do. And may you this week live out in such a way that you are just blown away by the fact that God demonstrated his own love for, insert your name there, in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his own love for Steve in this. While Steve was at his worst, when Steve was running away, when Steve was an enemy, Christ died for him. That's beautiful. Next week, we'll pick it up with Romans 5.12. We'll go dive back in. We're going right in. We came up for air here a little bit to a beautiful kind of summary passage, but next week we get right back into it. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next week on Romans Untangled.